Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. From the recent Reformation Boise Conference, Anthony Savaggio. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on Matthew, talks about how Jesus is bringing out the motivations here. Uh, He writes this, he says, Jesus is not so much dealing with a different kind of righteousness or with mere acts of righteousness as with the motives behind righteous living. Motivations matter to God. Our God is a motivating God. We see that in the Ten Commandments. We see it in Jesus' preaching. But what happens is something very powerful and different in the post-resurrection, the post-ascension era of redemptive history. Something changes in this motivational focus. And that's really the heart of what Calvin gets at in the chapter. And this is the second point on my presentation this morning, is that God motivates us here in this present age, living in between, after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and prior to his second coming, in this moment, what he uses to motivate us is the future life. The primary, there are other motivations, I'm not suggesting this is the only one, but the primary driving ethos of the New Testament and the ethics that Paul calls forward, the thing that we're to be focused on, meditating on, motivated by, is the future life. So let's consider that this morning. The motivation of the future life. And this is where we come to Titus chapter 2. As we see this play out here, and this is what Calvin draws upon, and this is why he quotes it in the chapter, Titus, of course, was trying to plant a church and pastor churches in Crete. And Crete wasn't the greatest place, okay? It was a place of poor morals. It wasn't a very good place. Apparently, it was the cuna of the Bible. That's what I understand as far as what I heard last night. I was going to say California, but I know that there's some sensitivity about California. So these are, these are, these are kind of uh, difficult people. This is not a high you know, moral area. And, and, and Paul and Titus are trying to get these Cretans to live in a godly way. And Paul acknowledges this is a hard task. He quotes the poet Epimenides in, in verse 12 of the first chapter where, where it says this about Cretans. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They were in a culture of moral confusion much like our own. And so Paul is trying to get these Cretan Christians to live godly lives. And I read that first 10 verses, right? You saw how in those first 10 verses there are these categories of people, young women, old men, young men, old women, and he's issuing imperatives. Here's how you got to live. 
You can't live like you used to live. You're Christians now. You've got to change how you live. And here's what you need to do. And so he tells them what they have to do. But again, he doesn't do this based on blind obedience. He recognizes the importance of motivation. He recognizes they're going to ask the question like a child. Ask the question, why? Why? Why should I live this way? And Paul gives the answer. And he begins to give that answer in verse 11. There's a turning point there. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That word for is a conjunction, a causal conjunction. It is the because. Here's why. That's the function of the conjunction in that text, to tell us why. Did you have those little schoolhouse rock things? Conjunction, junction, watch. Did you have those? Yeah, good. How many of you like those? But there's this, what's going on with this conjunction here. He's telling them the reasons why, and then he unfolds it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That Paul could pack a lot. Right? He can pack a lot into a phrase, a paragraph, a sentence. He, this is jam-packed. I think easily you see there in that text, right, this is about holy living. Paul you know, hits that uh, tremendously there, right? He, in verse 12, this, he calls us to renounce, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Where? When? In this present age. This present age. He uses this eschatological cue, right? He's talking about this present age in eschatological terms as an age ushered in by Jesus Christ and his coming. Right now, here and now, in between, we are to say no to ungodliness, the things that are anti-God. We're to say no to worldly passions. That's really primarily the sinful desires of the body. But we're also to say yes, we're to live lives that are self-controlled, to control those desires, upright, that we're to do justice in how we deal with other people, and we're to be godly, we're to honor God with our conduct. Paul is talking about holiness, living the Christian life in the here and now, in the present age. That's verse 12. But what I want you to see, and this gets a little... It gets a little heady here, but let, let, let me, uh, I want you to see that that verse 12 is in what I would call an eschatological sandwich. Okay, you got a sandwich, what do you have? You've got a piece of bread, some meat in the middle, and a piece of bread. Well, Paul is doing that here, and verse 12 is the meat. It's the centerpiece of the sandwich, but there are these two eschatological pieces of bread on the outside of that sandwich, these two appearings of our Lord, these two eschatological events, these two advents, these two epiphanies, as the word is used here in both verse 11 and verse 13, the bread on our sandwich here. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, epiphany, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What is that referring to? That's Jesus. That's the coming of our Lord in his incarnation. 
through his crucifixion. For the grace of God, for Jesus, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's our first advent. That's the beginning marker of the new age, this present age. But then we have verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, the epiphany, the advent, the second advent of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are living in between. There is this present age ushered in by the coming of Jesus in his first advent, and there is this age to come that we are looking forward to when the Christ will appear again in his second advent and we live in between those two things in this present age and we are called to be holy as Paul tells us in verse 12. Here's what you're to do in this present age. But what I want you to see and think about is that all of this is Paul fixing our eyes forward to what is to come, what we will be, who is coming. He's focusing our eyes on the future. Even when he calls us to look back at the appearing of our Lord, it is really looking back in a sense to look forward ultimately. That all the New Testament, that the whole entirety of the Christian life is forward focused on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we live in this weird time. Because now we live in a time where Jesus is ascended, right? Jesus is at the right hand of God. We are living here. We're looking forward to the age to come. Jesus is the pioneer. Jesus is the first fruits. He's already there. We're waiting to be joined with him, but he has not abandoned us in this age. The scripture says crazy things like, You are seated now in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a sense where we're already, in some sense, uh, f- feeling that age to come here and now in the power and the presence of the Spirit, in the gathering of the saints in worship, that we are always arched toward the future as a Christian. And it's by focusing on that future, it's by focusing on the power of the risen Christ that we can live in the here and now. Oscar Coleman, who a New Testament uh, scholar, used the illustration of D-Day and V-Day to kind of talk about these appearings of our Lord. And he used D-Day to refer to that first appearing, right, when Christ came Really, if you, in history, right when the D-Day invasion happened, it was the victory was essentially assured. It was a matter of time. That was the moment the victory really was won. And Jesus did that upon the cross. He won the victory and his resurrection and his ascension. Our justification was complete in that moment. But we're still waiting for V-Day. For the celebration, for the consummation. When we will be with our Lord. The bottom line is that this is what motivates us to holy living. We need to think forwardly. We need to think about that future age to meditate on the power of the risen Christ in our lives, the glorious appearing of our Lord. We need to be motivated by the age to come. 
It's like we're getting ready. We're getting ready for our next life, the future life that we have, and we're motivated in the here and now by what we have to look forward to in Jesus Christ. And that's really an amazing and wonderful thing if you think about it, that God chose to motivate us with the glories of the age to come. Live now because of what you shall be, who you shall be. You shall be like him. He uses that as the motivation for us. Think about where you're going. Think about your destiny. Think about what I am making you into. It's liberating and it's wonderful. I mean, God could have used a variety of ways to motivate us. He could have used fear. Right? He could have used fear. He could have said, he could have done what, you know, he could have done the Santa Claus things. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. He could have said, Jesus is coming back, so you better watch out. You better be afraid. And because you better be afraid, you better live the right way now. He doesn't do that. Instead, he points us towards a blessed hope, the glories of the coming of Christ. He could have motivated us with guilt, right? He could have used that as a motivator. We do that all the time. We make people feel guilty to do things for us. It's a powerful motivator, particularly if somebody has done something for you, right? You want to make sure they pay you back. You owe me a debt. I did something for you, now you better do something for me, and that's the motivation. You better pay me back. God could have done that, right? We owe a debt we cannot pay, or we owe a massive debt. He could have said, because of that, but he doesn't. He doesn't use guilt as the motivator. Instead, he motivates us with what we shall be in Christ Jesus, what we have to look forward to in Christ Jesus, the blessed hope that we have in Christ Jesus. He fixes our eyes firmly on the future, not in fearful prospect of his coming, not in a guilt-ridden prospect of his coming, but rather in a glorious, joyous, hopeful prospect of his coming. 